0: Hey everyone, this is Laz Jackson of Detroit Bad Boys, and we're back in your eardrums. Yeah, it's good to be back. I am joined by Ben Golker to talk about the reports we've gotten from the Detroit bubble. We give our thoughts on some of the Pistons' front office hires, and we talk about what we've noticed in the NBA bubble as the season winds down. As always, we appreciate your continued support of the podcast. The best way to do that is to share, subscribe, and leave comments please leave comments on the discussion post on Detroit Bad Boys. That's the best way for us to have the conversation that we want to have around the podcast. In order to do that, though, you have to follow DetroitBadBoys.com, which you should be doing because it's the best place on the internet for Pistons news and analysis during this long, long offseason. With all that said, it's time to go to work. hello everyone welcome to the detroit bad boys podcast it's been a while sorry i'm your host lazarus jackson uh pleased to be joined as always always it's by my co-host <laughs> ben golker ben it's been a while
1: <laughs> yeah hey laz it's good to be back i mean i feel like i should say i'm rusty but at the same time i've probably spent a good 50 percent of my life the past seven months on Zoom calls and conference calls and everything else. So, you know, I can't cut myself too much slack. We got to hit the ground running here. How are you doing, Laz?
0: I'm doing well. Uh, I hadn't thought about it like that, but that is completely fair that I've spent a lot more of my life on Google Meet than I used to in the past. (laughs) And so, yeah, I should absolutely be just used to hitting the ground running, talking, but, uh, you know, we'll get back on the bike. We'll see how it goes. But uh, like... Like everybody else, we are still getting back into the swing of things. The Pistons are, were back in the swing of things. They started their uh, organized team activities in their uh, self-kind of fashion bubble in Detroit. Um, we got to full team activities, past single workouts under five-on-fives. Uh, we got good reports out of that from the media about the way uh, Secu looked, from the way. Uh, Bruce has looked from uh, some of the younger guys in the teams offering a little bit more leadership than we've seen in the past. Uh, what else kind of Ben did you hear from, from the bubble? and what were you looking to hear out of the bubble?
1: Well, as uh, just to point out for anyone who hasn't read it yet, make sure to check out make sure to check out the blog. There's a really excellent piece up there by, uh, by one of our two podcasters, and it's not me <laughs> about uh, things to be paying attention to. Uh, in the bubble. But, uh, you know, I think for me, the guys I really am interested in, uh, Seku, Luke and Bruce, um, you know, from Luke's perspective, obviously, the thing we care about is health. Uh, the reporting so far has been that he's spent the time off doing like this sort of specific regimen to strengthen his lower body. And all of those workouts are designed to take pressure off of his knees. You know, obviously, we can't learn a whole lot about how effective that has been over the course of just two to three weeks. But, you know, hopefully it tells us a little bit of something. Um, I I was also interested in the reporting that I I think it was Keith Langley at Pistons.com. Dwayne Casey's running him at point guard due to sort of the the shortage of point guards with uh, Derrick Rose not being in the bubble. And then obviously we just sort of have a general shortage. So uh, Casey's been putting the ball in his hands and, and expects to put the ball in his hands in the five on five stuff. So, you know, obviously I don't expect Luke to play that role long term, but at the same time. Um, being in that position could be good for him. It could tell us a little bit more about uh, how his secondary ball handling um, could be coming along. So I'm interested in that, interested in his playmaking as well. Uh, I'm interested in Bruce Brown. Um, He hopefully had a lot of time to shoot a whole lot of jumpers. So, you know, the rest of his game has been coming along nicely. Um, I wanted to, I just about said last year, but it's still this year, I guess. He sort of added that corner three to his game. It'd be nice to see him add. Um, a little bit more than a corner three so where else could he become a, an effective shooter so I'll be watching that and then I think everyone's probably interested in Seku, right like um, we've heard about reports about um, as you mentioned his physical conditioning as athleticism and strength hopefully that's all moving in the right direction obviously that was a little bit of a concern uh, when the pandemic started and, and he kind of left to do his own thing but it sounds like he he did the right stuff. But, you know, I'm particularly interested in seeing how his ball handling has come along. Um, you know, and I think it's, it's not just the handle, but it's also the decision-making at the end of a dribble drive. So, uh, you know, he kind of got himself into some weird situations. You could see he had the right idea sometimes, couldn't quite execute, you know, lots of silly turnovers, um, those kinds of things. So I'm curious to see how his handle looks. So uh, I know you've got some other things on your radar, but those are the kind of guys that, uh, that I'm really interested in hearing about over the course of this week.
0: No, I, that made me just think about the, uh, the most, one of the more recent reports that we got that uh, the team had been trying Seiku like at five, just to see what it looked like and how, you know, he's not probably going to get to handle the ball a lot as the center in a Dwayne Casey offense, but uh, how interesting that would be for his decision-making, right? Like seeing the, seeing the ways plays develop from a different perspective might be really good for his like decision-making, right? It, it, when you see how when you're the short roller and you see how things like look for, for the short roller, it, it opens up like an idea of like what you should be if you're the guy, you know, elevating from the corner or whatever um, on the wing when you're, when you're playing that position. So yeah, I and, mean, yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to say that's interesting too, because I hadn't heard that report and that's interesting um, last week I was chatting with a, uh, a friend about the Pistons and we were kind of thinking about, okay, well, what if Seku pans out and what does the team look like after Blake Griffin's contract and all that kind of stuff. And having watched so much of the, the, the bubble playoffs this year and seeing so many teams experiment with small lineups, I was like, you know, well, what, I wonder what a, a situational small lineup of Christian Wood and Seku in the front court would look like. Uh, so that's that's interesting to see that they're they're kind of toying with that idea in that scenario. I don't think you really have a center. you just have two bigs um who could potentially be versatile and and kind of tough to match up with so so that'll be worth paying attention to for sure.
0: no for sure. it makes me uh think of the way Seku was handled when he first got down to grand rapids right like he was he was their uh he was their five man for like the first two or three games mm-hmm. before they got everything situated in Grand Rapids. And it was a very odd look, but he was definitely able to use his ball handling ability and uh, first step to beat off to beat bigs off the dribble, guys who like aren't you know were used to defending uh, what sake can do on the perimeter at the G League level, and so if you know he's able to elevate that, like that's definitely something you want to take advantage of. But like you know he's not going to play five full time, but it'd still be an interesting look to offer, right?
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Luke, uh, you, you spoke about Luke and Bruce as well. Um, Luke sounded like he had a great camp, sounded like he was healthy, which is very important. Um, I was very curious to see how the front office was going to evaluate Luke, just because this is one of the bigger decisions that a brand new front office has to make on Luke, what what to do with him from a contract perspective. Um, it sounds like, the The coaching staff is uh, was enamored with what Luke was able to do, um, like you mentioned, playing point guard, putting the ball in his hands, having him make uh, make decisions. Uh, I'm sure that went really well. Luke's a really intelligent player. Uh, I wonder. Uh, I joked about this a little bit on Twitter, but I do wonder how it went uh, defensively for Luke at, at point guard. Um, he was not the uh, greatest defender this past season. And having him kind of at the point of attack uh, leaves me a little bit cold. But I do hope that, you know, with the physical improvements he was able to make to his lower half, that he'd be better on that end, uh, better defensively as well. And so, yeah, I'm, you know, with, like, Luke is uh, pretty clearly the like the Pistons' uh, best young player right now. Like, you hope Seiko ends up better than Luke. Uh, you hope, uh, you know, I don't think of Christian Wood as a young player, so maybe, maybe that helps uh, people kind of delineate. Since uh, Christian Wood's kind of been around the world and, and seen a bunch of stuff already, but uh, but yeah, Luke is, Luke is the best young player on the team right now, and so it'd be uh, very useful to get a gauge on like kind of where where he's at um, going into the season, which uh, will start whenever the season actually starts. And then uh, Bruce, I was struck by uh, Casey's mention of Bruce as a as a more vocal leader. Uh, I think that that's a that's a good direction for him to take, um you know, with uh, his ability to defend on the perimeter you you want him kind of calling out coverages. you want him kind of instructing guys where to go, where to be to uh, to kind of quarterback the the defense in that way, especially since a lot of the veterans, a lot of veterans who don't do that or a lot of veterans who do, Do that for the team aren't in the bubble. I'm thinking of like Blake and like Langston Galloway as guys who are really good about that. And so you like to see that uh, that elevation of what of what Bruce offers as well. Uh, We got less reports about like he's taking off the dribble threes and stuff. I don't think Bruce magically turned into Trey Young during (laughs) the uh, during the break, but it was definitely I I do think that uh, him being a leader is uh, is better for this team. One thing we we didn't get to see, unfortunately, was the uh, the Justin Patton experience. You know, Justin Patton was Troy Weaver's first acquisition. He had pinky surgery early in the bubble and, uh, you know, was in the bubble, but didn't wasn't able to play or practice with the team uh, for the entire duration. Uh, ben Patton's a guy who continues to intrigue me. I'm, I'm a little frustrated he can't stay healthy. I imagine it's pretty frustrating for him, too, but, um, you know. I still think he should be on the roster and maybe even in the rotation for this team, despite the fact that we weren't really able to see uh, what he's got in the bubble. What do you, what do you think about that, Ben? Well, I
1: join you in being excited about the acquisition. I think uh, it was a great buy-low opportunity for the Pistons. I think you know something like pinky surgery, uh, obviously you're always going to be looking at guys who miss time to injury. Uh, and with a little bit of skepticism and question marks, but I think, you know, something like a pinj- pinky injury, it sounds like sort of a fluke thing, right? Not necessarily a long-term durability problem, right? It's not a lower back problem. It's not a knee problem. It's its just sort of a fluke sort of injury. So, yeah, to me, it's still sort of a no-brainer. You obviously have holes to fill at big man. Um, you know, we're, I think we're sort of at the point where you're comparing, you know, him to sort of a Thon maker type of a player. And to me, that's just such a no-brainer you know, that you absolutely move forward with it. I think between now and the time, you know, you're going to have to have your roster finalized. You're certainly going to have time to evaluate him in some way, shape or form, uh, especially considering we don't even have a start date for the next season yet. Absolutely. Keep him on the roster. Um, I, I think you absolutely follow through with the fact that you got him for next to nothing. And if he pans out, it's going to turn out to be, you know, an incredibly, High value sort of situation in terms of the contracts and what you're getting for the dollar, so yeah, I'm still excited about this. I'm with you. I think you stay committed to him and make sure you get a chance to look at him you know when he recovers from this hopefully pretty minor injury
0: yeah the The pinky injury is doesn't doesn't really point to like a long-term concern. You're absolutely right, but it is part of a larger history of him just being injured for a good chunk of his professional career. And uh, that, gave, that, that gives me some pause, right? Uh, we, we talked a little bit about this with Blake, right? Where we're not entirely sure if Blake is injury prone per se, but he is injured often. So it, 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 uh, it makes you kind of concerned about what uh, you have in, in Pat moving forward. But you're, you're absolutely right in that uh, if the alternative is, you know, Thonmaker or Adam Woodbury, or uh, you know any of the uh, unrestricted free agent centers that are out there on the market right now, it makes a lot of sense from a dollar perspective and from like a youth movement perspective to just continue to to look to see what you have in in a guy like Justin Patton. Um, you know we're 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 rooting for you, Justin. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: We know yeah. you're listening to the podcast too, for sure.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> they're not doing anything right now, right? <laughs> Uh, all right, Ben. Uh, next thing I wanted to talk about was Troy Weaver filling out his staff. We got a full uh, we got a full press report from the Pistons about the uh, rest of the front office behind Troy Weaver. We got some uh, old faces, we got some familiar last names and we got some new blood uh, on the staff in Detroit. Uh, did anything stand out to you in, in that uh, press release, Ben?
1: Yeah, the first thing is there is some super creative job positions that sound really intriguing, (laughs) aren't there, on the Pistons organization? Um, But in seriousness, I think the guy that stands out to me is Dan Rosenbaum, and and this is a promotion, so he's not a a brand new face, but it's an internal promotion. And there is a couple of reasons why this is interesting to me. The first one is he's he's kind of an analytics minded person; his background is in economics, Um, and I am always interested in those types of acquisitions. You know, unfortunately, a lot of work that he has done appears to be proprietary. So, like, we don't really get the, the chance to evaluate any of his analytics or any of his models or anything like that. Um, but I did sort of check out his own resume that he's got up on LinkedIn, which I found super interesting, especially his most recent NBA experience before coming to the Pistons, where he worked with the Hawks from August of 2012 to June of 2018. And anyone can go check that out. It's really easy to find. Um, But he talks about it as, you know, helping an aging team that was up against the luxury tax when he started with the team in 2012 to three seasons later, turning that into arguably the best team in Atlanta Hawks history. So that's what he describes his own time. uh, And he emphasizes that they did that with one of the lowest payrolls in the league. And only one significant contributor on a rookie scale contract. So that's super interesting to me. As we know, the Pistons have, um, you know, they have some money to spend, but they also have some really important decisions to make about guys like Bruce Brown, guys like Luke Kennard, and so on, right? So having someone with the experience to navigate the salary cap and still build a winning team without going over the tax, I mean, that's interesting to me. The second thing that jumps out to me is. Um, he talks about building some models that evaluate the performance of international players based on factors such as age, team strength, strength of schedule, uh, international statistics. Now, it's interesting to me for two reasons. First of all, um, you know, we saw the Pistons draft an international player, right? They drafted Sekou. Um, and presumably some of Rosenbaum's analysis would have factored into that in some way. Um, but more interesting to me was um, Luka Doncic was actually drafted by the Hawks when Rosenbaum was there. Now they obviously didn't keep Doncic. They traded him for Trey Young. Uh, Trey Young's also pretty good. (laughs) So, um, you know, we don't know. I, I tried to research, you know, how involved was Rosenbaum and how significant was his evaluation with respect to actually making that draft pick and then doing the trade. I wasn't able to find a whole lot. But I do think it's pretty interesting that he was there during this Hawks rebuild that I think was was really surprising to a lot of people, was done in a very cost-effective way, and then also was involved in the the drafting of a guy who, if he stays healthy in Dakar, could potentially be, like, you know, top 50 kind of caliber player, right? Like, absolutely phenomenal player. And then, uh, you know, the trade for Trey Young, who obviously – a fantastic talent in his own right as well. So, Pistons have those kinds of decisions to make financially. They also need to hit in the draft, especially if we continue to be unlucky in the lottery. Uh, so, I'm super interested uh, in in this guy. The fact that he's promoted to, I think it's like senior director of analytics, something along those lines, suggests to me that they like what they've seen from him. Um, so, so yeah, I think potentially a guy who won't get a lot of press probably not going to get a lot of credit if things go right, but, you know, might be an important voice um, in this sort of retool slash rebuild the Pistons have going on right now.
0: I love the LinkedIn research.
1: <laughs> that is I take great. this seriously, Laz. I, you know, I, I prep. I do my job.
0: No, I, I appreciate it. It's also interesting to me that, like, these guys are as accessible as as a, as a LinkedIn profile, right? Like these, these are business people. They're, you know, out here job hunting like the rest of us. Uh, it is interesting to me that, uh, he would describe his time in Atlanta as such. That is a, as a very, uh, as a very, uh, resume way to describe those Atlanta Hawks teams. I, I will say that much.
1: Uh, <laughs> you're exactly right. It was, it was, uh, <laughs> let's focus on the good things, right? Like we yeah. all do it. We all do it. He definitely did there. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to choose to take the optimistic approach, I think.
0: No, I, I, think, I think that's what uh, I think it's fair to do at this stage of, uh, of the rebuild. Um, the thing that stood out to me was Eric Tellum, the uh, son of Arn Tellum, being named the director of pro scouting for the Pistons. That was interesting to me because uh, just four years ago, Tellum was a player equipment manager for the Pistons. So he was he's uh he is either a guy who has worked his way uh up the ranks in the piston system very quickly, or uh this is a case where the last name means a lot to to the title, um, especially uh with other guys below him like Harold Ellis, who has been a scout in the n b a for you know a decade plus. And uh, a guy like Ryan West, uh, another famous last name is the son of Jerry West. But at least uh, we have a better track record of what uh, of the decisions that Ryan West has like taken involvement in. Right. Like we the uh, credit for a lot of the pieces the Lakers were able to trade for Anthony Davis. <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of current New Orleans Pelicans uh, were attributed to the, the scouting eye of, uh, of Ryan West. Um, And the Lakers, you know, you know, weren't always successful with that young core. But, you know, between guys like Brandon Ingram and and Josh Hart, uh, Avicii Zubac, I hope I pronounced his first name right. Even a guy like Kyle Kuzma uh, at where he was selected late in the first round. um, I like to think that uh, the Pistons could take advantage of a mind like that. Uh, The Pistons currently don't have uh, another draft pick. We might talk about that in a little bit but uh a guy like Ryan West is someone I'm more excited about than a guy like Eric Tellum who I don't really know a lot about. And so we'll see what we'll see who uh how that ends up going basically. I'm I'm curious to see uh if those charges of nepotism which I am not levying, uh if those charges of nepotism turn out to be uh founded in, in some way. Uh yeah.
1: Well, I mean, the flip side of that is it could be a really cool story too, right? Like a guy works his way up in a short amount of time because he's a brilliant mind. Like that, we can't just rule out that possibility just because he has the same last name, right? Like we have to be fair.
0: And you know, with a father who's been in the league as long as Arndt has been in the in and around the league, uh, it makes sense that you know he would get to know the business of uh, of scouting, you know, really well from a young age because he's been so involved. with the team or with teams and with, uh, with players. So like they're like you, you chose to take the optimistic side with, uh, with Mr. Rosenbaum. I chose to take the kind of the pessimistic side, uh, with Mr. Tellum. but I do hope that both of those individuals end up, uh, working out for the Pistons uh, as a whole for sure. All right, Ben. Uh, next thing is the draft. We uh, we saw some rumors. The rumor it's uh, draft season. We got some interviews with players. Uh, now the the rumors are starting. We uh, we got a report from uh, I believe it was Jonathan Wasserman at Bleacher Report saying that the Pistons might trade out of the seven, number seven overall pick. It didn't say which way. That could be up. That could be down. Uh, it could be you know higher in the draft or lower in the draft. I should say, Ben, if you had a choice, would you rather trade up or trade down in this year's draft?
1: Yeah, so you mentioned that report. Sean from DBB had an interesting piece, which it was almost two weeks ago already that he wrote it. But, yeah, I mean, I think the proposal here was the Pistons are trading the 7 for three later picks, 14, 26, and 30. I think in a normal draft and in normal times, that actually seems really interesting. But, you know, I know the consensus is that this draft is just not great. And, and Sean was particularly critical of the, the selections that were made in that piece at fourteen twenty six and 30. And, you know, so from my perspective, trading out of this draft, or at least trading out of this pick, certainly worth entertaining, especially if, you know, they have a, a sense that whoever's left on the board by seven doesn't really fill a need. And there's not really someone with a whole lot of upside you might try to draft and, and develop or something. I don't know, last call me crazy. Like would it be nuts for the Pistons to trade out of this first round entirely and try to trade into a potentially stronger draft a year from now? Is that nuts? Am I crazy for thinking that?
0: No, I don't I don't think that's nuts at all. Um I I don't know if the team wants that just because like I think that starting off the the rebuild by flipping a future pick, having nothing really to show for this the entirety of this long offseason. I think that would be a little tough. That's a little bit hard of a of a sell to, to fans. But, you know, from a purely like asset valuation perspective, no, there's absolutely uh, nothing wrong with that idea. You're definitely not crazy. The issue there is that, you know, other teams also know that this draft is weak and that future drafts will presumably not be as weak. And so you are gonna face a premium for uh the future draft picks that you're trying to obtain that's the that's the thing that makes it tricky to me but absolutely no it's it's a it's a worthwhile idea to entertain absolutely
1: no i'm gonna so i'm gonna pose the same question to you though Laz, because you you you're much more of a draft buff than me um if the pistons are going to trade which way are they trading up or down and why
0: uh i think they would trade down um i think that the uh assumed trade of uh those number seven for 14 26 and 30 is like a a really good starting point because uh, boston doesn't need all those draft picks they already have i think eight or nine players under the age of 25 on their roster and that kind of proved to be a problem for them in the playoffs where they didn't have any real veteran leadership uh, off the bench that they could lean on um and so like yeah that you could see how the framework of that makes a lot of sense on the other hand uh, it seems like a, it'd be really difficult for the Pistons to get up in the lottery to like a four or a, a, or a, a second overall pick just because you'd have to add something to the number seven overall pick to, to make to that height. And the Pistons don't really have many assets worth attaching that are also going to be that are going to make up that difference, right? I've seen people try to trade like Blake Griffin to the Warriors and stuff. Uh, for the number and include the number two overall pick in that uh, in those deals. I've seen uh, people try to trade Luke Kennard for like the number two overall pick uh, and some stuff. I don't think either of those guys, uh, even in a draft that's like as weird as this one, uh, get you to where you you need to be on on the high side. And so trading trading down uh, makes a lot more sense to me. Um, as for what you do when you trade down, I think Sean, you know, pointed it out in that article. You have to hit on those selections, right? Uh, this Pistons roster is very uh, full of young guys, um, and that. But that does not mean you can just, uh, you know, throw away the development cycle by just drafting guys you don't uh, think have a hold a lot of promise. Um, and so, I and for me, the the thing is with that that fourteenth pick, like you, you hope the player a player that you really like. Would be available at fourteen, if I'm remembering correctly. Troy Weaver said that they had uh, thirteen players. The draft was like thirteen players deep that they that they were really scouting. Um, you know, with the fourteenth pick, it is possible that all, four, all all thirteen of those players are gone. And so, you would hope that uh, were the Pistons to make that trade on, uh, you know, on draft day or before, um, they would have a, a, a specific individual in mind at that uh, for that. That top first round selection, and then uh, you know see how the draft goes uh, for those later selections. But yeah, like I, I think it's I think it's entirely possible that the Pistons trade down. I think it's much less likely that they that they end up trading up. All right, Ben. Uh, we I talked a little bit about you know how the Celtics did uh, earlier, but have you been had? Have you been watching the the NBA bubble playoffs? Has anything kind of stood out to you as applicable for the Pistons?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much is applicable to the Pistons, but I've certainly watched a lot of basketball, and I have really enjoyed it, Laz. You know, obviously, 2020, we chatted about this pre-show, has been an absolutely crazy year. And the NBA bubble has been just such a necessary <laughs> diversion for me, personally. And, you know, here's there's a handful of things that, that stand out. Um, you know, the first one as a Pistons fan, the past 10, 12 years, we've seen so much bad basketball, right? (laughs) Right. By by the time we get to the spring every year, 82 games of, you know, Pistons futility. Every spring, I sort of fall in love with basketball again when the NBA playoffs get here because there's always great basketball to watch. This year in particular, right, like the playoffs are always amazing, but we got treated to some really incredible high-quality basketball in the bubble even before the playoffs started. I mean, guys just having career nights, You know, people taking 45, (laughs) 45 footers, just pulling them off the dribble and hitting it like just incredible basketball. So the quality of over overall of the basketball being played stands out to me. I think when you consider the fact that, you know, everybody had a couple months off, so everybody was healthy. The fact that there's no travel when you're in the bubble means everyone's much more rested And we get to see, as a result, the best athletes in the world do absolutely incredible things. And and we got treated to it night after night after night. Uh, And that was just such a much-needed highlight for what has otherwise been a really difficult year. Uh, You know, and to me, I I thought a lot about this over the past several years, but this really came into focus with the bubble. Um, I know this is a pipe dream, so I'll preface it that way but I really wish the NBA and maybe the players union can find a way to leverage this into the conversation. I really wish the NBA would uh, reduce the number of games a little bit so that we could just completely eliminate back-to-back games. Um, We could potentially minimize these long road trips where you're getting, you know, four games in six days or three games in four days because the travel and being away from home, it clearly clearly impacts the quality of the basketball that that teams are able to provide. You know, we're in the era of load management, right? I mean, San Antonio kind of got ahead of the game and did this and started getting fined for resting their players, and now everybody's doing it. And I think as fans, we really suffer from that, right? I mean, you, you buy a ticket to a game months in advance to go see a superstar player only to find out that that superstar player is in load management the night that you go to show up. You know, so I I wish the league, um, you know, I hope that they look at this experiment and they see that having healthy rested players um, is just so much better for the game. Even if it takes a little bit of a hit to the bottom line, I really hope there's a way to have that conversation. So, yeah, I mean, I, The only thing I can think of related to the Pistons is how many former Pistons ended up playing pivotal (laughs) key roles, right? Like the Morris twins. I mean, we can, there were four or five that, you know, that you look at and say, wow, those guys, you know, actually can contribute something when they're in the right role being used the right way. Um, But yeah, just, I have watched this just more as a fan of basketball in general. Uh, and have really been enjoying it uh, up to the finals, which has been a dud so far, no way around it. Um, the heat have looked overmatched and of course are injured. So that, that doesn't help anything, but yeah, just, just wonderful basketball. Uh, and and it was just really much needed.
0: Yeah. I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I do wonder if there's gotta be some space for uh, the way for the league to cut down on travel, just because it, like you said, has improved the quality of the play so greatly that that is absolutely, that seems like that would be a better product to sell. If you have a higher quality product, you know, you can charge more for it and maybe recoup some of the lost game revenue that way. But man, you're right. Just the the, the level of play we got in the bubble uh, has been ridiculous. Um, I will say that, you know, one thing I was just looking at from, I try to look at from a roster construction standpoint, like how all the conference finals teams are constructed just to see if there's anything the Pistons can emulate. And you, you look at a team like Miami who really prioritized uh, length and, and two-way ability uh, in their acquisitions uh, from, you know, drafting KZ Akpala to trading for Andre Iguodala and uh, Jay Crowder at the trade deadline from, you know, uh, pulling, uh, giving Bam like full-time minutes at center after uh, essentially uh, playing him at power forward for most of the, uh, the regular season before the bubble. Um, I think that that's definitely something when you're trying to build out this roster as a, as a front office, you can, you can definitely look to emulate. And it's not just like draft any wing that comes along. It's you're drafting wings with a uh, defensive inclination and uh, who can who can still you know play make and, and attack closeouts, um, you see that with uh, you see that with like guys like Tyler Hero, um, you know not not everybody can draft Duncan Robinson and not, not everybody can you know find and develop a guy like Duncan Robinson, but you can definitely find your uh, there are going to be shooters out there and you can hopefully like you know get those guys to a competent level defensively and, and make them weapons, fashion them into weapons in that front. And so I, I definitely think the Pistons can try to uh, to emulate the Miami model. And I think a lot of small market, we're going to see a lot of small market teams try and do that uh, in the future. Absolutely.
1: Um, yeah, go blue, right? Yeah. you're Duncan Robinson. Okay, so I got to say shout out to Trey Burke, though, too, for rediscovering his career at 26, 27 years old um, with the Mavs. That, as a Michigan fan, like that was also something special to see. I really like your point about Miami, Les. That That's super interesting. Um, the thing I'm thinking about, too, that I didn't mention before, and I, I'm curious to see what you think about this. Like, you look at the Lakers, and they've got a, a couple of pretty pr- traditional bigs, right? Like, you've got the ghost of Dwight Howard. You've got, you know, the other bigs that they kind of cycle through there. <laughs> the ghost
0: of Dwight. I like that.
1: <laughs> but, like, to me, one of the narratives going into the – into the the conference finals and into the finals is like, you know, how, how how important is a traditional big man in today's NBA? And I think, I think the Lakers are making a little bit of a case that it's still important to have big guys who can play like big guys. But having said that, like, I think Bam is probably the future of what the NBA big looks like, right? Like he can still do big guy things, especially defensively, but, um, he's so much more versatile than a traditional big uh, and he's one of those few big men to me who gets the mix of it. Right. Like there are just so few big men who do the big men stuff, especially defensively, but then are also versatile offensively. And to me, like, I think there's still a role for the big men in today's NBA. Like you look at what Houston did it, and it just didn't work. Right. Like you need that. You need the Kevin Durant and the, the entire Warriors' rosters to, to really do small ball and dominate. Like, you I, just I mm-hmm. can't do that with any smattering of five players, right? Like, you need that elite talent. Um, but I think there's still a role for the NBA big man, and I think it looks a lot like maybe what Bam Adebayo is, is becoming and what we're seeing him become kind of right before, his eye, right before our eyes.
0: Yeah, I do. I think that um, the Lakers are, are proving the utility of big men. But I think we're yeah, we're still kind of seeing that it's not necessarily as valuable in uh, in like a it's more valuable in the regular season than it is in the playoffs. Um, you look at the team that used their uh, their centers the most to do big men things in Milwaukee. Like they obviously had a very disappointing playoff setting or playoff showing. Um, and when I go back to the Lakers, I think about how. Um, they signed so many big men because Anthony Davis has made his preference clear about him not wanting to play center full time. Right. And so that kind of affects what you do from a roster construction standpoint, because you would like Anthony Davis to be at his best. And he feels like he can't be at his best if you're playing small with him at the five the entire time. And, you know, I I get that. He doesn't want to take the, the wear and tear of an 82 game season, you know, pounding, uh, Guys like Zubac or guys like Nikola Jokic, uh, night in, night out. I I understand that. Um, and the other thing I think about is the, the what having a traditional big kind of opens you up to do defensively, especially for a team like the Lakers. What um, what I saw uh, I, I saw analysts like Nikias Duncan and, and Zach Lowe point out is that you know having that traditional center on the floor for the Lakers. In Dwight Howard, but having him be as good as he is defensively enables the Lakers to have like all world uh, help defenders like LeBron James and Anthony Davis kind of helping you out. And so I think that, you know, that that's a a big key for what makes their the Lakers defense as good as it is, is that, um, you know, that you have guys as tall and as intelligent defensively as Anthony Davis and LeBron James on like behind the play. Uh, in in help defense, and I think that if you you know you don't have help defenders with that level of basketball intelligence, you know with that level of of size and skill, you know it's not going to look as good, right? When you have if you have you know Brook Lopez flanked by you know West Matthews and Dante Divincenzo, that's a little bit different than you know having uh, Dwight Howard being flanked by Anthony Davis and LeBron James. Um, so I, I do think that there's the Big men still have utility in this uh, in today's NBA, and uh, they'll I they will continue to have utility as long as the basket remains ten feet in the air. Right, <laughs> but uh, I don't know if it's I do not I don't I don't know if they're they're never going to go away permanently. But I do think that their uh, their value is definitely lowered from from where it was in the past. And I wanted to throw one curveball at you, Ben. Uh, what do you think of maybe hosting the finals in a central location? Like yeah. you, you, have, you have home and homes all the way through the playoffs. And then for the finals, you know, maybe it's in Las Vegas. Maybe it's in New York. Maybe it's in uh, you know, a, a major media market. Um, and you, know, you have some number of uh, season, season ticket holders that are, that are still able to make the game. You prioritize the game that way are the fans of the you know, of the teams who made the finals that way, but uh, you're able to kind of space out the rest a little bit more, a lot less travel in a central location. What, what do you think of that idea, Ben?
1: Ooh, that is interesting, Laz. Okay, so it links to our sort of quality of life, quality of basketball conversation, right? Because you, you sort of eliminate the travel. You make sure that guys are rested and healthy as much as you can be by the time you get to the finals, obviously. Um, there's certainly there's certainly something interesting about, you know, this is what the NCAA does, right, with the Final Four. Right? It's in it's in one place, you get a whole bunch of fans who may otherwise never get to experience the finals, etc. I think the obvious downside to me there are two. The first one is it it wouldn't feel as much like the cities win when you win. Um The second thing is I have always loved to, to see the the road team win the finals on the road, there's something about <laughs> that that I just love seeing. Um, you know, there's a few reasons for it. I mean, Michael Jordan was very influential for me growing up as a. When he knocked down that jump shot over Brian Russell and you know won number six um, in Utah, like to me that was just like what 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 a way to end a career. And of course he came back and whatever. But I mean, there, there was just something iconic about that. I also think, like, you know, when you think about when the Pistons won the championship over the Lakers, um, the going to work Pistons, that is, there was something special about going to L.A. and just giving it to the Lakers on their home court, which you would lose in your scenario. So, ooh, I would need some persuading, because even though the Pistons are probably not going to win another championship anytime (laughs) soon, like there was something uniquely special about going to the lakers and just stuffing them
0: okay okay again we're we're just throwing out ideas i'm not particularly tied to that idea but i had seen it floated and hadn't we hadn't really asked you about it so was yeah, like let's, 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 what
1: what do you yeah. think about it what like what are the what's the big pro and big con i'm curious yeah
0: the big the big pro is definitely um, is definitely travel i think there's also something to uh to making the nba finals more of an event mm. right and it's like if you take it to a central location mm. uh, i'm thinking of like the super bowl how the super oh, bowl yeah. then played in a, in a home stadium right yeah. the for a two-week period right like you could own the city in which you're hosting the nba finals mm. i think there's there's absolutely something to that you can make it like a that'd be a, a basketball pilgrimage uh, of yeah. sort for, yeah, for really uh, involved fans yep. um I, and you know the the I'm glad you brought up the4 the 04 the Pistons as well too because the the state of uh, you know Finals home court has not always you know been the same right we've we've flipped back and forth between two three2 which is what it was in 04 which is I think like a big factor in uh, the Pistons winning the title in, in five games and you know two two one 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 which is uh, can, you start off the first two games and, and then you do home games every other game uh, towards the end of the series. Um, and I think there's, and so I think there's some, you know, wiggle room to say like, hey, like, you know, we we've changed the way the finals have operated before, um, you know, it's possible to to change it again. I don't think it's it's, you know, blasphemous from a basketball perspective to uh, to try that. Um, the other thing I think about is the fans, right? Like you you have a great uh, championship level team. You, you want to see them uh, in your city and all of a sudden they're, you know, they're halfway across the country like that. That kind of experience kind of sucks. And like, yeah, the, the way you kind of get around that is I'm thinking of the uh, the parade, you know, mm-hmm. after you win the championship. But at the same time, there's, there's still nothing quite like being in the building to watch it happen. And so I think that'll... Uh, that that's kind of a i think it's a it's an interesting idea but i don't i don't think it's one that we'll we'll see anytime soon that's what i'll say about that
1: yeah there's you know and obviously in the time of covid the idea of 20,000 people screaming is not like the most appealing thing to think about but <laughs> i can tell you that i mean one of the most an experience that i will never ever ever forget was you know, my bachelor party, I was fortunate enough to, my, my friends knew me well enough to know that they should take me to a Pistons game and surprise me. It was game three against Boston. And uh, we got our butts kicked, unfortunately. Uh, it, but it was a playoff game, game three against Boston at home. And the, the, the transcendence and the noise and the pyrotechnics, like that feeling as a fan is I think pretty close to impossible to duplicate, and you know those are the moments that that stick with you. So even though the Pistons lost, just like that shared collective energy around pulling for your team to win, you know a really important big game at home. Ugh, yeah, the thought of losing that is is pretty tough. Pretty tough to imagine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right, Ben. Yeah, this was fun, man. We need. I need to get back in. I need to get in the saddle and and start doing this consistently again. I yeah. apologize to to no. all the listeners.
1: It was fun. I mean, I mean, we've got a weird off season ahead of us here. As we were talking about pre show, like a year ago at this time, we're talking preseason, <laughs> and we're right. we're not even done with the finals yet this year. So
0: <laughs> it was like in, a, in a couple weeks, we'll be like one week away. Uh, we'll be hitting the uh, the anniversary of the Joe Johnson Christian Wood decision. Oh my gosh! Think about that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, all right, Ben, let the people know where they can find you, where they can uh, find what you're, what you're thinking about uh, as, we, as we move into the, uh, the official end of the NBA regular season.
1: <laughs> well, you can find me in my house, which is where I am about 98% <laughs> of the time right now. Um, no, you know, at BRGolker on Twitter, the world is crazy right now. My Twitter feed reflects that. But when the games are on, I'm tweeting about basketball. So you can always hit me up there.
0: And, and you can do the same for me on Twitter at Last Chance. That's at L-A-Z-C-H-A-N-C-E. All right. This has been uh, the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. And we'll talk to you in the future. I still don't know when, but I promise you we'll, we'll be there for you. Take care.